welcome to All Right in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. Our featured guest today is Kim Conklin. We have a very special meta event for this episode as we celebrate our podcast founder, BookFest Windsor supporter, and dear friend Kim Conklin. So Irene and Sarah are delighted to be celebrating Kim's first novel today. Kim Conklin is a writer, filmmaker, and podcaster. Kim's stories, poems, and films have appeared in journals, anthologies, and film festivals. Her journalism has appeared in broadcast and print, and her communications work has received more than 15 awards, including a Clio and a New York International Film Festival Award. Her first novel, King of Hope, releases in October 2022 with Palimpsest Press, and Kim will appear at BookFest Festival du Livre Windsor on October 14th. Originally from Michigan, she lives in Windsor, Ontario. Welcome, Kim. Well, thank you for having me, um, It's which is kind of weird because I'm here all the time. I'm just in a different chair today. So, yes, thank you. We're so happy for you. Um, so your writing career began with filmmaking. And so how did you find yourself on that path? Actually, um, I started out as a teenage TV producer. I just totally fell into it. Yeah, um, I was yeah hired by my local TV station as a full-time writer-producer before I turned 20. And uh, it just took off from there. So yeah, it's, it's all I've ever really known as an adult. And it's sort of the core of all of my writing. Because, you know, the first thing you start out writing is sort of three-second station IDs where you learn to make the picture and the word do a whole you know a whole lot very quickly and then you build from there into more and more and more and yeah it's it's yeah it's been an interesting journey writing scripts is a unique foundation for fiction writing has your script writing tended to be collaborative or have you worked on your own a lot most script writing is very collaborative um actually as we were going through this editing process i think amy uh the editor thought that, you know, she was really being hard on me at times. And it's like, this is not bad, you know, I mean, because you when you're writing scripts and you're writing marketing materials in general, and, you know, there's a lot of voices involved, a lot of people have uh, opinions. Um, one of the joys of this kind of writing is that everybody has the same goals. That's not always true in other kinds of writing. You know, sometimes you have different people with different goals, and that makes it a little bit more tense at times to try to, you know, collaborate. But you do it and it, it works out and everything works well so it would be really sad if it was tense between your book editor and yourself as the author I would think so yeah no actually for me it was kind of like a joy of discovery it's like oh wow you know she gets where I'm going she, we're on the same page she understands exactly what the goals are here what I'm trying to do and she likes it you know it's like oh this is great so yeah it's, it was quite a quite a fun experience for me that's great and then you morphed from script writing into fiction. 
So what came first, the story or the idea of King of Hope or the desire to write in a different medium? Well, I had been, um, I studied with Alistair McLeod uh, way back when I first came to Canada. So I had been playing with fiction for quite some time. Um, and it, I started writing King of Hope back in the early 2000s when I was sending out screenplays and such to Hollywood. At that point in time, they were open to reading things from people who weren't you know, in town. So, and I did pretty well with that and that was great. And um, the idea for King of Hope actually started with an image that I thought would be a screenplay. And the image was of sort of a teenage girl lying by a motel pool, but she kind of lived there. You knew she lived there. And she was in a hazmat suit, uh, sunning herself on a, on a lawn chair. And then as you pulled out, you could see that there were all these other people in hazmat suits around the motel, kind of digging things out and cleaning things up and whatever. So, so that was where the whole idea started. Um, and then as I developed it and kept playing with the idea, it sort of wanted to be a book. So that's the direction that it took. That sounds more mystical than it is. I don't know. <laughs> You're following your gut a lot. So, yeah. So King of Hope is set in what could be small town Ontario on the edge of a large body of water with, un with industrial areas not too far away. What is it about this setting that appealed to you? Um, sort of the everydayness of it and, and also being on the edge. Um, it, it is on the edge of Lake Erie. It's on the North shore of Lake Erie. Um, so it's sort of on the edge of Canada. It's sort of on the edge of industry. It's sort of on the edge of the water. I mean, there's kind of a lot of different things and also, um, the remoteness of it. There is something about it that is just not quite connected as closely to the rest of the larger world. So it becomes sort of a bubble. And the story itself, I think, which is, it wasn't intentional, but it kind of came out as I was working on it, is it, it describes life in a bubble, you know, and how everybody sort of lives in their own bubbles and how that impacts the decisions they make or, you know, the way that they live their lives. So there is a dichotomy between the ordinariness of life in this town and the kind of gothic theme of the outside environmental dangers of ongoing industrial work. And that creeps into the town and the story. It affects the lives and even the health of the main characters. So how did you go about the process of knitting this dichotomy together? Um, well, I mean, I think there's kind of a tradition of Southern Ontario Gothic, you know, where everything looks really nice and, and sweet and clean on the surface. But underneath, if you dig down just a little bit, it's maybe not quite you know, as it appears. So, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of, again, what I was playing with consciously is that that distance between, you know, how things look, and maybe another perspective and how they really are, or other influences. Yeah. So how did you come to the decision that your main characters should live in a slightly worse for wear hotel? Again, it was part of that original image. There was something about that that appealed to me. Um, and yes, three, uh, two out of the three main characters live there. The other two live next door and own the motel. Um, it's There's something about those mid-century motels that are, you know, I mean, they're sort of strangely a transient environment. And then how is it to live there? You know, I mean, there's, there's sort of a, an interesting contrast there that I was kind of playing with. So um, it's, it's like, well, 
do you go or do you stay? And that's kind of another question that we that comes up a lot in the novel is like, what makes people stay in a certain area, especially when you're faced with some really large challenges. So. So the book also celebrates the outward versus inner lives of the characters. It seems to be illustrated in the depiction of various creative outlets, that the main character is possibly in a conflict of interest, being both the mayor and the editor of the newspaper, and his wife with her talents with photography, but her unhappiness at home and not really making a career. And then finally, uh, young teen Letty, who masks her health struggles by dressing up as various movie stars. So was it always your goal to reveal the inner life of creative types as opposed to other types of people? Well, I'm not sure that I see a difference between creative types and other types of people. And I kind of feel like everybody's creative in some way. You know, it might not be with art or writing or photography. You know, other people might have, um, you know, I think engineering can be incredibly creative. You know, um, there's there's a lot of creativity that goes into, um, you know, homemaking or, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways in which people express their creativity. So that this just happens to be those people, right, that they they express it in that particular way. And in a sense, Roger is kind of, he's the fourth character. Um, he's kind of opposite in that, in that he's in sort of what could be considered a creative field. He's a journalism, you know, he's a journalist, he's a radio journalist. Um, but he, he kind of suppresses his creativity. You know, he's a very much just the facts and, you know, stays right on point all the time and, and has a hard time with creative or emotional kinds of things. So. While the book deals with very serious subject matter, there is an element of wry humor that I think would be recognizable to those of us who have lived and worked in small towns. Would you classify this novel as a satire or does it work on another level? I don't know if that's up to me to classify. I was trying to find the lightness in it. Um, I was trying to kind of bring out the absurdity because sometimes the things that we do and the things that we believe are kind of absurd. You know, they're certainly not logical. And, you know, by doing that, hopefully get to, I mean, another question that comes up a lot in the, in the book is about truth and how we define truth. And in fiction, you can look for a different kind of truth that's maybe more connected to the emotions than other kinds of truth, say in a government report, where it's going to be extremely factual and whatnot. So, so um, yeah, I think that it was definitely intentional to highlight the absurdity and find some humor in the situation. And even in very serious moments, there's always humor. That's just part of being human, I think. But that's the world, according to Kim, and I know the acronym for that is WAC, but yeah. How challenging. <laughs> That's great. How challenging was it to strike the right balance in terms of the level of absurdity or that magic realism that exists there concerning chickens and one very important amphibious mammal? Oh, yes. And, and yes, the, the muskrat. Um, well, again, that's part of just figuring out how to write stories. There's a rhythm to them, I think. This is, again, and it, it's something I learned maybe in video editing, um, that there's a rhythm to how things go together. 
Um, I always often talk to people who are just starting out working with video editing that it's sort of like creating a musical phrase or a sentence. There's a grammar to it. And that's the same with sort of building a story in my mind. But again, that's, again, just a world according to Kim thing. That's just the way I kind of feel my way through the process. Cool. Have you had time to think about your next project? What are you working on now? Um, well, actually, um, I had a request come in for a second book. We, it's still kind of all in play. So I did take one of my screenplays that's sort of uh, a, um, a gender-bending romantic comedy and turned that into a book over the winter. And yeah, I have a whole list of projects that I'm actively interested in and want to spend more time on. Um, and then um, a couple in film and also a couple of novels. Um, uh, both of the novels are, tend to be more historical, sort of influenced, one influenced by the history of this area, one influenced by some history in the States. I, I haven't I haven't done a ton of historical drama yet, but it interests me for some of the same reasons that King of Hope interested me is that I like taking bits of mythology and kind of pulling them apart and looking at them and putting them back together in a different way. So, yeah. Hmm. So, Kim, after years of volunteering at BookFest Windsor, you finally get to be a BookFest author. Now that you're going to be famous, what is the most outrageous request that we should expect to see in your author appearance contract? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, gee, I hadn't even realized there was going to be an author appearance contract, so I hadn't thought that one through yet. Um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe an extra bottle of Diet Coke or something, you know, that'd be fine. I'll be fine with that. And yes, no um, I think perhaps as much as I love BookFest Windsor, I do, you know, with all my heart and um, I wish I were still a bigger part of it and hopefully someday in the future that can happen again. But um I think that perhaps expecting being famous out of a BookFest Windsor appearance might be overshooting the mark just a little, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, I appreciate I the thought. The book overall. Okay. <laughs> okay. I appreciate that though. I do. Yes. 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 We'll so. talk to your publisher about that. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to be a wonderful experience and I think it's going to be a great conversation, which is another reason that I love doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, I so don't expect it to suddenly, you know, the next thing would be Oprah or something, you know, I mean, I, just, <laughs> I, I don't see that. Wow. Well, you never know. Don't underestimate. That's true. There is magic in life, right? Yeah. <laughs> So we'd love to invite you to read some of your work for us. Would you like to set up your selection? Um, yes, this comes near the beginning of the book. The first character we meet is Hartley Addison. He is the mayor slash newspaper editor of this small town. And he's kind of coming home from one of his, you know, many events that he has to attend and, you know, ruminating about his connection to the town. He basically feels like one of the town's people, but he might, you know, maybe put a little more intellectual pressure on things than others. And that sometimes causes a little bit of conflict, but they love him dearly. So, um, but lately he's been having these experiences and it's, you know, caused him to really rethink some things. And this is one of the most 
prevalent experiences that he has is one that he just can't stop going to see. He's having sort of visions, right? Um, and this is him on the way home and he's drawn to go look at this vision again. So to the east of the observation area was an attractive stand of the young mountain ash. The trees formed a natural screen blocking the east view of the harbor from both the picnic area and the parking lot, as most people didn't like to look at the east side. It was the view behind the ash trees, however, that had drawn him here. He left the keys in the ignition and headed down the steps and through the picnic area. As he approached the ash grove, the moon disappeared, and he picked his way through the empty beer cans and brown bare underbrush in the dark until the scene he came for a sight he never dared to discuss with anyone, began to appear through the trees. He could see it best at night, especially with the weather conditions this time of year. The world was just settling in for its long, cold sleep, and tonight the collision between the seasonably cool air and the still warm water produced a dense carpet of fog that wafted up over the shoreline. The chimera began on the far east edge of the harbor, where a three-story gray-brown brick-and-glass office building sat on a rocky point, positioned at an angle. Two huge atrium windows sat on the corner, staring unbleakingly out over the lake. That was the head. From there, if you followed the narrow strip of smooth, government-maintained asphalt lined with streetlights as it wound along the heavily wooded bank, you came to a group of storehouses. These buildings gradually spread out and increased in size, giving shape to a serpentine upper body. At the east corner of the harbor, the two identical gray steel wings of the manufacturing facility spanned the road, suggesting the possibility of flight. The last and bulkiest building on the road, the warehouse, was the swollen belly. Its bay doors opened onto the dock where the trucks and freighters came to fill their empty trailers in holds with freshly painted metal cylinders, the perfectly symmetrical industrial spawn they would carry around the world and cast on the soil of friendly countries. Finally, the road continued a few hundred yards to a gated fence that ran down to the shore, tapering off in the shape of a small appendage. The compound encircled just over half of the harbor, giving the impression that the reptilian creature was poised to bend back and chew on its own tail. That was what had drawn him here the past few weeks, ever since he had first seen the monster in a flash. The beginning of a bizarre series of frightening waking dreams, roaring and belching monstrous flames. As he looked down on it now, the ever-pregnant plant seemed merely restless, lying under the trees, breathing and birthing, exhaling invisible, flesh-brazing particles into the air, the earth, and the water. Fire in the water, water that burns. In olden times, that would have been seen as a fearsome power, black magic. Now it was explained away with multisyllabic technical terms that inspired mostly indifference. Looking down at the smoking, spewing figment of his imagination, he reminded himself that this was something he didn't want to admit to anyone, ever. This sight, whatever it was, was a much bigger deal than simply liking an underrated season. Lately, he'd been seeing lots of things that weren't there, things that he knew weren't real even as he was looking at them, but that appeared and sounded so real, so trustworthy, that he'd felt he'd stepped into a parallel universe. This picture of the plant as a living creature was still the strongest, but the others were mounting in number. He didn't even know what to call them these 
seems, all of the usual words having far too religious an overtone, and he certainly didn't know what to make of them. He sat down on a large flat rock at the edge of the ash grove, trying to come to terms with this revelation. Why did it appear to him? Was he the only one who saw it? The plant had been there twice his lifespan, an inveterate part of the community. What, at this late date, could he possibly do about it? He stayed for an hour, maybe more, in a near trance, waiting for a sign. That's wonderful. Kim, thank you so much for being such a sport and sitting on the other side of the table for our episode today. We're so thrilled. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate your kindness in this interview. I appreciate it. (laughs) As you know, I don't like to make myself the focus of these things. So yeah, I appreciate it. Kim Conklin will be appearing at BookFest Windsor on Friday, October 14th. And our Friday night fiction panel, check out bookfestwindsor.com for more details. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.